Welcome to the Sanction Space Podcast. I am Justine Walker, Head of Global Sanctions and Risk at ACAMS. This series brings you the stories behind sanctions. What are the trends? Who are the key people? And how do the threads of the past shape future thinking? Joining me today is Dr. Hans Jacob Schindler, Senior Director of the Counter-Extremism Project in New York and Berlin. Welcome, Hans. It is a pleasure to have you join us today. Thank you, Justine. Thanks for having me. Hans, let's begin with some context. In 2013, you joined the very important ISIL Al-Qaeda Taliban sanctions monitoring team of the United Nations Security Council. In fact, you served as the team's coordinator from 2015 to 2018. For listeners unfamiliar with the monitoring team, it is essentially responsible for assessing and reporting to the Security Council on the global terrorism threat. This is a very prestigious role which really can, and I think it's fair to say does, define global terrorism responses. Talk us through, what did it feel like when you first took this role and started engaging with the Security Council members, the wider apparatus? Was it just another job or did it feel very different? Yeah, it's not like any other job. As you already said, the team advises the members of the Security Council, both on the current threat posed by Al-Qaeda and ISIL, as well as the threat posed by the Taliban. But also, the team makes recommendations to the Council on how the global counterterrorism sanctions regime can be evolved and developed to counter this threat. Not only the analysis of the team is global, but also its effect of its works is very global. It uses, of course, the global infrastructure of the UN, including in-conflict zones to gather information, and of course the long-built trust that the team has developed with member states, in particular the security agencies, to get that information. Therefore, it is a unique job. It's working at the UN, but not for the UN, but for directly the 15 members of the Security Council who will make the decisions on how the sanctions are going to develop. This team works on the issue where there is the broadest possible consensus among the members of the Security Council. Even at times, and I've seen this over and over again, when the Council is politically deadlocked on issues such as Ukraine or Syria, counterterrorism was always an area where progress continued to be possible. So Hans, while you were in post, you witnessed the absolute phenomenal and rapid rise of ISIL throughout Syria, Libya and Iraq. What happened in a very short space of time, the geographical ISIL gains, the brutality of the organization, families, doctors, teachers, even teenagers to travel to the region and join the ISIL uprising. This really shocked the world. And at the time, it seemed unprecedented in so many ways. As a team, how did you actually monitor what was happening on the ground throughout Syria, Libya and Iraq? essentially four mechanisms, right? So you have the direct information from member state security agencies that you get and the team organizes several times a year all over the globe regional intelligence service meetings where it brings together the intelligence services from one particular region, including the Middle East region. The second mechanism is, of course, travel to the conflict zones, including to Iraq and Syria, including during the all these places, of course, the UN has infrastructure. As you know, the UN always has missions in the worst places in the world. The third mechanism is that uh, we interview and talk to member states that are involved in the conflicts as well as neighboring states to the conflict. And third, the team also has a global network of contacts that the experts bring to the table. All 10 experts, 10 experts from 10 member states of the United Nations, were all counterterrorism experts within their own governments before they were appointed to the team. 
the team is then also supported by UN staff and very different to other parts of the UN. Usually people who work as support staff of the team are very experienced UN employees with years, sometimes decades of experience in UN missions in conflict zones. And so they bring their own contacts and networks with them that the team can use. Obviously, as you can imagine, the team has established contacts to international organizations, chiefly, of course, Interpol, IATA, ICAO, this is the airline industry, the WCO that your listeners certainly know, and then the FATF. And the team is also an observer in several of the FATF-style regional bodies. So there are many streams of information that the team can tap into to monitor a situation like Iraq and Syria. I mean, I remember certainly engaging with the team when CERT was overrun in Libya, and it's just such a fascinating role that you have. But during this period of time, was there a standout event which really brought home the scale and seriousness of what was happening across the region? The rise of ISIL was a real turning point on global counterterrorism, only maybe eclipsed by 9-11. But structurally for the team, the emerging threat was not quite as surprising as for many others because we had been monitoring Iraq and Syria quite closely, and also because the team has been assessing and developing sanctions against the Taliban since the establishment of the global counterterrorism sanctions regime in 1999. And so we were used to looking at large-scale organizations that control territory as the Taliban do, and develop a criminal economy as ISIL did, very much like the Taliban drugs, extortion, mining, logging. So nevertheless, for the team, however, this incredible amount of foreign terrorist fighters that ISIL was able to motivate globally was surprising. Already, and you know, I like to claim credit for this, already in the team's first report on the issue in 2015, we predicted the current situation. In that report on the foreign terrorist fighters, it said, think about the returnees now. This will be over one day, and then these individuals will have to somehow be dealt with and they will have to come back to where they came from, the home state. You can't leave them in a conflict zone. We saw the problems coming. Unfortunately, as, as you know, we are still in the middle of tackling that particular thorny issue. So in terms of the sanctions and counter-terrorist financing strategies, when you look back, what are the lessons do you think the international community should really learn from this period of time? There's so many ongoing elements, as you've just indicated, there are really three lessons, right? So number one, this is a no-brainer. Do not take your eye off the ball of lingering and protected conflicts. Both Syria and Iraq allowed ISIL to rise because the international community really didn't pay too much attention to it. These conflicts can always escalate quickly and significantly and any lack of governance, any weakness, any conflict is always an accelerator for terrorist movements. The second one is terrorism financing is continuously transforming. Who would have thought that we have a terror organization anywhere on the globe that is producing oil, industrializing, looting and smuggling of antiquities on a scale never seen before, building up its whole own economy, investing in real estate in the region. So we need to be able to continuously address and adjust. CFT is a continuous fight. It's never done. And the third lesson really is New technologies will be adopted. Again, a no-brainer, you've seen what ISIL has done with the internet and social media. Any communications technology or financial instrument will be adopted by a terrorist organization. There is no technology that is inherently good or bad or safe against misuse. So when you see new technologies rising, think about the possibilities of misuse 
think about what hurdles you can put in place in order to prevent this misuse. There is an unfortunate mechanism that whenever we have a new technical innovation, it is seen as this is the solution to the problem. It is partially the solution to the problem if you think about communication and internet and social media, but it's also always part of the problem if you think about how it is misused by terrorist organization. So do you think the ISIL type threat has reduced or has it just moved to other parts of the world? Well, reduce is a very big word here. I would say transformed, right? I mean, clearly, wherever ISIL was under control over territory and was challenged, it lost. It was in Syria, as you already mentioned, in 2016, in Marawi City in the Philippines in 2017, in Iraq and Syria until 2019. They just could not hold on to territory if they were seriously challenged militarily. But despite this having an obvious impact yeah, on, on not controlling territory on the organization as well as its financing, it has very successfully transformed into an organization that is now a network of affiliates, very much like Al-Qaeda. So if you're speaking globally, you have a competition between ISIL and Al-Qaeda, but they really divide the operational zones very neatly among each other. There is no fighting on a larger scale, apart from very few exceptions, a little bit fighting in Yemen, definitely fighting in Somalia, but for the rest of the world, they really do divide it. If you're talking about ISIL financing right now, you do have two major mechanisms. Number one, and this is unique, they still use the fund left over from the so-called caliphate. So my former colleagues, the team right now in its last report says there's about 100 million US dollars still unaccounted for that ISIL had when the caliphate failed, and we haven't found that yet. So that is a lot of terrorism that buys 100 million US dollars, especially if you're now an organization that no longer needs to run cities. And secondly, there are the rural and regional finance mechanisms that the affiliates have set up. And here you have the whole range of what is imaginable. You have crime, you have extortion, but you also have economic activities if you're thinking about Al-Shabaab's involvement in some of the harvests in Somalia. So it's quite complex. The regions where we see the ISIL threat at the moment are the same as you would think in any kind of terrorism analysis. Not much has changed there. Of course, North Africa, West Africa, East Africa, the Middle East, South Asia, i.e. Afghanistan mainly, and neighboring countries, and Southeast Asia. So how does this sit with the wider picture of global terrorism? What does that actually look like? Well, the threat overall is morphing, right? So you don't forget, we do have a small pandemic going on. COVID-19 had really two effects. Number one, because of the restrictions on going out in many countries on large gatherings, it really significantly reduced the amount of targets that terrorists have to choose from. So you saw a slump in large-scale organized terrorist attacks. But also you have the diffusion of the threat online. No more people spend time online. All terrorist organizations, including ISIL and Al-Qaeda, see this as an opportunity and have ramped up their efforts to radicalize online. But also that means the threat is no longer as structurally clear because there are so many more people now being radicalized. It's not clear what organizations they belong to or aspire to. So you now have this rising threat of individual perpetrators. If I may remind you, last week uh, the story broke that one tourist being knifed down in Tristan City was knifed down by a released terrorist offender from ISIL. In France, you had not only Charlie Hebdo too, the attacks in front of the former office of Charlie Hebdo, but also the murder of the French teacher Paty. If you talk about Europe and the United States, of course, you have other ideological phenomena that are rising, and chiefly among them is right-wing extremism and terrorism. Here, for a number of years already, you see 
rising level of violence and there are increasing transnational connections and cooperation so right-wing guys are no longer hypernationalist they actually found within new apocalyptic narratives like the great replacement theory by Camus a French guy white genocide something that American groups aspire to or day X right apocalyptic narratives they found this as a basis to very nicely cooperate so you know enemies for a thousand years German right-wing and French right-wing guys cooperate quite nicely on this and here unfortunately the financing is much less understood and much less researched the sums however and we at CEP my organization are just finishing a study on this one the sums these guys are making on the right-wing extremist side are quite scary we're talking about millions of dollars in euros per year mainly three pillars festivals music festivals bands and mixed martial art events sometimes in combination secondly sale of merchandise paraphernalia t-shirts stickers books and then see donations. The problem that we have right now in encountering this is that many of the groups and networks on the extreme right are not yet declared as terrorism by member states, which means extremism, which is an administrative, not a legal category, doesn't allow the employment of the same CFT instruments that you have when you counter Iceland and Al-Qaeda financing. But there is a significant reputational risk for the financial industry that I can see. These finances are used for violence. Just the last two years, Christchurch, El Paso, Halle, Hanau, a plot to kill the French president. All of this financed with money from the right. So it is a real, real reputational risk here. So there's been so much change over recent years, but from a sanctions terrorist financing perspective, what do you think the main changes are? How has the world changed and what does the future look like? I mean, main point here, in my opinion, is that from a CFT perspective, we have not yet sufficiently addressed new technologies. And there are two main open flanks that I can see, right? Number one is internet and social media. CEP released a report in January 2020 on this issue. There has been a lot of discussion on terrorism content. Uh, there is development of not only national, German, French, British, but also EU regulation and legislation on that issue. But the function as a tool for financing of terrorism has not been effectively addressed on this regard yet. So the tech companies do simply not focus on this, even global ones. When we tested terrorism financing activities on internet and social media just on global platforms, in January this year, we found eight profiles of 42 terrorist finances that are by name named on the United Nations Security Council 1267 ISIL Al-Qaeda sanctions list, the most prominent terrorism finances there are, and they still had active profiles on global platforms. Even more concerning, the terms of service, if you look at these global platforms, not even significantly inhibit this. So there is no emphasis because it doesn't say, you know, on the monitoring side of the content, because it doesn't say so in the terms of service that you shouldn't use it. It talks about terrorism, it talks about violence, it does not talk about terrorism financing. And most disturbingly, even the terms of service of global crowdfunding platforms do not explicitly exclude terrorism financing. So no one should be in any doubt that internet and social media companies are any line of defense on this. The second issue, which hasn't really been sufficiently addressed, is cryptocurrencies. These are ideal for you know, lower operational costs. I'm not downplaying the positive aspects. As I said before, no technology is good or bad inherently. But um, the fact that your identity is encrypted and can be discreet is perfect for terrorism financing or any other criminal behavior. Over the last few years, of course, there have been repeated attempts by terrorist organizations, both Al-Qaeda, ISIL, 
Hamas, Hezbollah, but also right-wing extremist groups to use cryptocurrencies to get donations. And in August 2020, my long-held assumption was confirmed. These are also a very good value storage mechanism for terrorist organizations when the US government seized about $2 million that belonged to Al-Qaeda and ISIL members. ISIL and Al-Qaeda, the argument was always cryptocurrencies are not good for terrorist organizations because their value fluctuates quite heavily sometimes. But this keeps forgetting ISIL and Al-Qaeda are not a money-making business here. For them, the protection of some of the assets is far more important than having the best price for the cryptocurrency at any given point. And the safety in anonymity in cryptocurrencies is really a mechanism that they value. The regulation has this not yet fully addressed in three aspects. Number one, having a regulation. This is no way that we have the cryptocurrencies regulated on any global scale yet. The FATF plays a very important role here and has released guidance a couple of years ago and again in 2019. So we are getting there, but it's not yet fully developed. So you can still do jurisdiction hopping. If there is an exchange regulated in your country, you just go to the neighboring country where it's not regulated in your backend business. Secondly, even if there is regulation in some countries, it really doesn't look at crypto crypto. There is this mayor that if we regulate the fiat currency to cryptocurrency exchange, that's sufficient. That is one really important aspect, but it's only one hurdle. So if you overcome the fiat to crypto hurdle as a criminal, as a terrorist, you're in business because crypto to crypto is not regulated anywhere in the world. And third, the new technologies within this are not addressed in any regulations, non-custodial wallets, non-custodial exchanges. Individuals can now download shareware on the internet and deal, uh, buy, sell, exchange cryptocurrencies by themselves. There is no intermediary to regulate anymore. This has not been addressed yet. The crypto industry really does has its work cut out as far as CST is concerned. It needs to develop, test, and effectively deploy compliance standards. And they're doing this. But at the core, this technology was not developed for compliance. It's not what they were supposed to be doing. This was a, at the core technology that says political involvement in finances is bad. We're developing now a value transfer mechanism that is unconnected to central banks. So there's no compliance systems there. They still need to rework all of that. I would always argue this stuff is here to stay. So integrate the systems rather than reject this technology. So you're now working on counter-extremism strategies and, you know, all strategies are a balance. As a parting thought to our listeners, with all the experience you have gained, what in terms of effectiveness would you like to see the international community most prioritize? Three major points, right? So globally, of course, the threat from ISIL al-Qaeda is still the most prominent threat. And do not assume that that threat is any less because, you know, there's a slum in fact right now. As I said, they will have more attacks they are held back by the COVID restrictions right now. Secondly, if you talk about US and Northern America in general and Europe, um, there is a double threat both from ISIL al-Qaeda perpetrators as well as right-wing extremism and terrorism. On the CFT issue, I see two main priorities. Push for effective regulation for new technology rather than rejecting them. They're, as I said, they're here to stay. You will not get rid of cryptocurrencies. So you know, make sure they are safe rather than saying we just ignore them or outlaw them. And then B, remain vigilant as far as CFT is concerned. The mechanisms always adjust. Terror finances are just as smart as those combating. When you look at the finances that we as a team looked at, most of them had years, some of them decades of experience in terrorism financing. They moved from affiliate to affiliate to affiliate, always being responsible for financing. These guys know what the hurdles are. 
They have analyzed the systems just as well as we have, and they will find a loophole. So it is, unfortunately, an unending arms war. But the imagination that just because they're Islamist terrorists or just because, you know, there are bomb-jacking, boots-wearing, right-wing extremists, they wouldn't be as smart as we is a really serious mistake. Hans, thank you so much. You have given us so many things to think about in terms of how the international community should respond and also just the realities of how sanctions and counter-terrorist financing interplay with what we do on a day-to-day -day basis. I do hope our listeners have enjoyed this podcast. Please do sign up as we move around the world to hear the stories behind sanctions. And indeed, today it's been sanctions and counter-terrorist financing. Hans, thank you. Thank you. I really appreciate to be on your podcast. Thank you.